You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, The Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star... And the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai obviously. And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 410 of this podcast. Today is Monday, June 13th, 2022. And today we're going to talk about another Matthew Barrett book, Simply Trinity, the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit, a Very interesting read, although I'll just admit, if None Greater by Matthew Barrett gave me just a little bit of a headache and James A. Dolezal's All That Is in God gave me a lot of bit of headache, Simply Trinity was uh, more on the James A. Dolezal All That Is in God end of the spectrum. I, For whatever reason or reasons, I found none greater to be easier to read. Uh, I don't know if it's because it was a better written book or just the subject matter seemed like it was a more intuitive or uh, easier to follow, more digestible uh, organization of the information. I don't know. I don't know. But quite honestly, 
Simply Trinity gave me a little bit of a headache, but it was good nevertheless. Humbling, if nothing else, and I'm reminded of something that Edmund Burke says in his A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful. At a minimum, (laughs) if you don't come away with this profound understanding of the subject, you will have a greater humility uh, with regards to the subject. (laughs) That might just be where we're at with the Trinity, or at least where I'm at with the Trinity after reading Matthew Barrett's book. But in any event, I have a clarification to issue on something I said in our last episode, talking about none greater. I said in our last episode that it was J.P. Chavez, Two Houses Down, who recommended none greater to me. That's actually not correct. I was listening back through it and I thought, well, wait a second. No, that's not it. Uh, Close, but uh, no. J.P. Chavez recommended this book to me because he was thinking I had said something about just not quite understanding uh, Trinitarianism, or at least it's just a, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's just an enigma. It's a puzzle. It's a head scratcher. How the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one and yet distinct persons. It is a head scratcher. It is incomprehensible or uncomprehensible as the creeds, the historic creeds of the church attest, which actually is a comfort. And uh, that helps alleviate my headache just a little bit. But J.P. Chavez recommended this Matthew Barrett book that I just finished, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. But Virginia Rogers, another uh, friend of ours from church, she was the one who recommended None Greater by Matthew Barrett. It just so happened both Virginia and JP recommended Matthew Barrett books or said they just so happened to be reading Matthew Barrett books at the same time. And they both recommended uh, separately, independently, two books by the same author. And I thought, well, man, that's really something. I respect both of them for their minds. They have good minds for theology and for reading. They're both really good readers uh, read a lot of books and have a, a, a uh, refined palate, if you will, for good content, especially good sound doctrinal content. And so there you have it. I got it mixed up, wanted to make that clear. Uh, but JP did, when I mentioned <clears throat> uh, None Greater, the subject of our last episode, he did tell me, oh yeah, I have that one too. And I started it. I don't know if I finished it. I think I started it and I got distracted. Uh, if I'm remembering right, that was his response. So in any event, both books are well worth your time and your credit. If you get them on Audible, I do believe that my wife has ordered physical copies of both because I got started in on them and I said, you know, I think these are some books already. I can just tell already. These are two books that it would be handy to have a physical copy of I liked listening to them on audiobook version, but having a physical copy as well to refer back to would be useful. And I think also it would be good for our kids to read them and to be more intentional in the way that they think about the attributes of God and what is sound doctrine with regards to God. What do we believe about God from the scriptures? What has historically been the orthodox 
position of the church, of Christians down through the centuries for the past 2,000 years. I think Matthew Barrett does a fine job of it. And, uh, I, you know, if someone has a, a better resource, by all means, let me know. But uh, it seemed to me as though he handled the topic very well. It was very clear. And if in any measure it wasn't clear or easy to understand, I am prepared to chalk that up to just the subject matter. The subject matter itself is difficult to comprehend and at some level by the creed's attestation, uh, uh, you know, incomprehensible. So there you have it. Uh, Goodreads.com book summary. I'll read that for you briefly. So we have at least a quick summary before I get into my miscellaneous uh, assorted uh, thoughts, reflections on this book. And I quote, what if the Trinity we've been taught is not the Trinity of the Bible? In this groundbreaking book, Matthew Barrett reveals a shocking discovery. We have manipulated the Trinity, recreating the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our own image. With clarity and creativity, Barrett minds the scriptures as well as the creeds and confessions of the faith to help you rediscover the beauty, simplicity, and majesty of our triune God. You will be surprised to learn that what you believe about the Trinity has untold consequences for salvation and the Christian life. To truly know God, you must meet the one who is simply Trinity. Also, the author's summary from goodreads.com, Matthew Barrett, MDiv, PhD, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, is Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the Executive Editor of Credo Magazine. He's the author of numerous books, including God's Word Alone, 40 Questions About Salvation, Reformation Theology, John Owen on the Christian Life, and Salvation by Grace. He is also the host of the Credo Podcast, where he talks with fellow theologians about the most important doctrines of the faith. He lives in Kansas City. So, <clears throat> that box checked. <laughs> when it comes to understanding the nuances of Trinitarian thought, I would refer you back to chapter one of Matthew Barrett's None Greater book concerning the incomprehensibility of God. That is one of the line items of the Athanasian Creed, for instance, that we believe in God the Father incomprehensible, God the Son incomprehensible, God the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. This is actually an important part of Christian doctrine, that we do not fully comprehend an infinite, perfect, holy, eternal God. That is one of the historic Orthodox Christian positions with regards to God, believe it or not. Barrett has made me aware of a great many things which were entirely unknown to me otherwise, but which I now realize I sorely need to study further in order to know what to make of them. I'm curious now, and I am troubled by, for one, the fact that I don't know these things. Understanding my own ignorance bothers me. And so I want to resolve to some measure, at least to a measure of contentment, my own ignorance with regards to some of these things. For one, in both 
of his books that I read over the weekend, Jürgen Moltmann would seem to be the best kept secret in modern theology. That might not be accurate. I don't know. It may not be the case. It may not be that Matthew Barrett has accurately depicted him, but he brings him up quite a lot. And the Wikipedia page for Jürgen Moltmann is uh, quite full. So he does seem to be an influential character, and maybe he is a really, really big deal. But he comes up in both books at some length because Jürgen Moltmann is one who has developed this idea of the social Trinitarianism that is now more or less du jour. And Matthew Barrett, at the beginning of Simply Trinity, he brings up when he was first endeavoring to shore up his own lack of understanding of the Trinity. He grabbed a whole stack of books, all the books he could get his hands on with regards to the Trinity, books that were well-beloved in the past few generations of Christian professors, theologians, pastors, leaders. And one after another, he found some, I think you could say, highly disturbing, concerning features. For one, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was presented in a way that would advance certain ideologies, certain theories, certain agendas, certain political views, certain pushes. The Trinity was essentially cast as a kind of prototype for us to revolutionize, if you will, our own relationships, our own institutions, uh, according to. And he found that really disturbing and not in keeping with the historic creeds, the historic position of Christians down through the centuries and down through the millennia. And I think that's important. I think it's important to consider that. And I have more to say about it, but for now, let's just content ourselves to saying, if it's totally novel for the past 100 years to talk about and refer to the Trinity in the ways that we are, and if what follows us talking about the Trinity in the way that we are is a whole lot of feminist ideology, radical egalitarianism, socialism, for instance, radical redistributions of wealth, anti-capitalistic talk. If what follows even is something that I have a tendency to agree with, which is complementarianism, maybe, just maybe, we do well to slow our roll pump the brakes. Hey, wait a second. Is maybe there a reason why this was not the way that the Trinity <laughs> was talked about for the past 1900 years of church history? It's only become this big feature in the past 100 years. You know, maybe maybe there's a reason, right? It might not be because we're so smart. Right? It might <laughs> it might be because our ancestors, our forebearers in the faith had more sense than we do. That's just a just a possibility that has to be considered. I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, so that's a really, really important point, actually, that I had never thought of. It was a total blind spot for me that I, I wouldn't have even known to consider. So thank you to Matthew Barrett for bringing that up. Uh, it's, it's well worth 
my time just to even have that much. But there was much more besides here in Simply Trinity. For instance, social Trinitarianism is a view which Jürgen Moltmann, this German theologian of the 20th century, came up with. And I'll repeat myself from last episode. I think that social Trinitarianism might more rightly be called socialistic Trinitarianism. I don't think that social Trinitarianism is necessarily the most accurate depiction given what the source of that view is and also what ends it has been used to try and pursue or achieve. But at a at a basic, simple level, I would say the breadth and scope of philosophical and political agendas which have been argued from a, as it appears, hijacking of Trinitarian doctrine is somewhat nauseating, actually. It's, it's, it kind of makes my heart sink. It makes me sad because I don't think that's proper. I, you know, I think for one, employing bad arguments even in pursuit of a good cause undermines your good cause. For another thing, besides people just at a certain point getting wise and then throwing out the baby with the bathwater and that being a danger for a good cause to be dismissed because you used a bad argument to advance it, there's also the problem of teaching people bad argumentation. Right? That's a that's a problem. Don't use logical fallacies to advance good causes. Because for one, you might have people get wise to the fact that, hey, this is a logical fallacy and I'm going to throw out what it is that you're trying to advocate for, even though it's a worthy thing and you just had a poor argument. But also the other side of the coin is you might have people who, recognizing that this is a good thing, repeat the faulty arguments and then they start using that faulty argumentation in other places as well, but they don't catch the mistake. Right, it's it's similar to something that just happened here at work this past week, as I was building these alarms <clears throat> for a new site that is in the works right now. They're putting it together, they're building it. I'm supposed to build the alarms, and I did, but I'm copying alarms from a previous site that was of the same generation, similar configuration, and all the alarms for that previous site should be reliable. That's how we want to build for this one as well. If there's any tweaks, they'll be minor. And there's my alarm for. Watch out. Every analogy breaks down at a certain point. Apparently, this analogy broke down faster than others. I have an alarm set on my phone. It's automated to catch when I'm using a bad analogy. Uh, Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, but no, I mean, so so I'm copying these alarms. I'm copying these alarms from a previous configuration. And I'm looking at them and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to check. I'm trying to make sure all of these alarms are correct line by line. And any of the particulars that correspond to the new site, like the facility ID, like the individual wellhead objects, et cetera, et cetera. Those are each going to have their own unique device ID the whole facility is going to have its own unique facility ID. That's how everything's going to get paired up and go from the right point A to the right point B. As I'm looking through, I noticed a typo, a funny typo. Instead of 
saying level bridle, B-R-I-D-L-E, in both places for this one level alarm. One place had it spelled correctly, B-R-I-D-L-E. The other place had it spelled <laughs> B-R-I-D-A-L, like here comes the bride, <laughs> like cue the wedding march, right? So I fixed it, right? Like I fixed the typo, made them both read the same, and there were some other typos besides. But then I reached out to my alternate and I said, hey, like, guess what I just found? And now my imagination is just running wild that we've got instrumentation out there that might be wearing a white wedding dress. Uh, and it's supposed to tell us when the level gets to a certain point and then it shuts down the facility. And he's like, you know what? I wonder how long that's been in there because we've just been copying and copying and copying and copying. And he went and looked and there were 42 instances, 42, 42 instances of the word bridal spelled B-R-I-D-A-L instead of B-R-I-D-L-E. And this is just a message, right? Just just to be clear, this is just something that's going to show up in a text or an email when it alarms. And it's been tested. So the, the core functionality is there, but just the description is going to be misspelled. But because it wasn't caught 42 instances ago, it's just getting carried forward again and again and again with each new facility for probably years and years. And so it, it can be like that sometimes, right? Where we have an error and it's copied again and again and again and again and again. And you don't want that, right? But the historic creeds, insofar as they are the product of very intentional, long-form, in-depth, deliberate, studious debate from hundreds of years ago, where they talk about the Trinity and the essence of God and the nature of God and, if you will, theology at its core, who is God, right? That's a, that's a big deal. That's very important. should be very important. If God is our Savior, he's our rock, he's our refuge, it's very important that we have the right idea about who he is. Who does he say that he is? And let's believe that. But I would say it's maybe even equal parts encouraging and depressing to look at the historic creeds and confessions of the Christian faith from the past 2,000 years and to realize how seriously our forebearers took doctrine. They took doctrine very seriously. And that isn't to say that they always agreed, but that is to say they knew when doctrine really, really needed to be hashed out. Hey, we, you know what? This is not some minimal thing. It's, no, it's not no big deal. It's a really big deal. We need to dig in and we need to discuss it. We need to figure out what is correct. We need to search the scriptures. We need to figure out whether what is being claimed is true or false. If it's true, let's agree with it. If it's false, let's reject it. Now, in our day, by contrast, we have, at least in my experience, what Gavin Nortland uses a helpful term to describe in another book that I'm reading today. I'm almost finished with finding the right hills to die on. He calls it doctrinal minimalism. Doctrinal minimalism basically 
means whatever is not the core and central gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the core gospel message. Whatever's not that is really not that important, and it doesn't matter that much, so let's not get into it because it would be divisive, because it would be upsetting to people, because it would potentially generate controversy and hard feelings and upset. Doctrinal minimalism is, I would say, by and large, what I've observed far too much of. And it isn't to say I've only seen doctrinal minimalism, because I have definitely seen the opposite, the extreme opposite. I have seen some who say any disagreement whatsoever, any even small distinction, is cause the question whether the person they're talking with is even a Christian. They say they're a Christian, but you disagree with me on this, I'm not even sure you're saved, right? That's bad, right? Like, that's not good. Maybe the false assurance from a minimum of Christian language is not so good, but also, too, denying that anybody else except for you is a Christian because they might disagree with you on some minor points, that's not good. But how do we know what is core and central and what is secondary if we don't ever talk about it, if we don't ever, we don't ever even discuss what is a primary issue, what is a secondary issue? All the while, even a cursory glance at church history, or even if you subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs, a contemporary periodical that is all about covering persecution of Christians around the world today, especially in countries which subscribe to communism or which are majority Muslim, you will realize that Christians for the past 2,000 years have quite literally lost their lives because they believe so strongly in some of these points that we don't even deign consider or study or discuss for fear of divisiveness and controversy. Not only did they delve into them, but they delved into them and then they believed so strongly that these were important things to believe that they were willing to die rather than renounce them. So for us to say, well, let's just not even get into that, let's not even discuss it, I think it's a sad state of affairs. It reminds me again of what I read in Martin Lloyd-Jones' introduction to his Sermon on the Mount series about Christianity in our day being marked by its superficiality. We think ourselves so wise. We are wise in our own eyes. We think ourselves superior to previous generations of church. And actually, we think, I think, like fish in water that don't realize they're wet, we need to improve on the doctrine and practice of the church historically, even when it comes to tinkering with Trinitarianism. And I think that's part of what caused Jürgen Moltmann to go off the rails with his social Trinitarianism. And I think more to the point, it's what caused his social Trinitarianism to be embraced as exciting and new and fresh. And let's, hey, let's publish this. It'll sell a lot of copies. And then a lot of people get persuaded and then they start baking it into the equation. And it's kind of like that difference between bridal and bridal except it's a lot bigger deal than just the misspelling of 
the word bridal, right? My recent example at work is comical, and yet it's not quite so funny if some very pernicious and doctrinally unsound, heterodox at best, borderline heretical, if not outright heretical, views on God have just crept into our standard operating procedure and our institutions just repeat these. They copy them over. We just keep copying the same mistakes over and over and over. That is not so good. That's not so bueno. Now also too, I'll say this, on the opposite end of the spectrum, one concern I have, maybe it's not the opposite end, I don't know, but another concern, a related concern, if you will, I have with regards to what Matthew Barrett does a lot in Simply Trinity is that as we delve more and more into historic church councils and creeds and confessions of faith, doctrinal confessions, I should hope that we would not lapse back into where the Roman Catholic Church was when reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin brought up legitimate issues with church tradition, particularly teaching on salvation and grace and indulgences, the selling of indulgences, for instance, purgatory, for instance, the relationship of works and grace to salvation, for instance, the authority of popes and councils and tradition over and against the plain meaning of Scripture was the fallback position for the Roman Catholic Church as it undertook a counter-reformation and anathematized and rebuked Luther and others and burned many at the stake and had them tortured on uh, the grounds that they were not recanting what it is that they had taught and claimed and confessed. And if there is no going back to the scriptures to double check, to make sure that what we're teaching accords with sound doctrine, then there is no recourse at all. And we will just do the same thing that the Roman Catholic Church did uh, in maybe a fresh way, in a new way. And that won't be so good. That will not be so good. That will be a failure of Protestantism if that happens. We should not be delving into the creeds and the confessions and the councils in an uncritical way where precedent carries more weight in our minds than God's word does, than God's authority does. Now, on this point, the the counterpoint, if you will, from Matthew Barrett is to distinguish between sola scriptura and what Barrett calls solo scriptura. And the difference here, as he describes it, is between the Bible being regarded as the only infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice on the one hand, and on the other hand, saying we reject anything outside of the Bible, everything outside of the Bible being dismissed out of hand. So church history... No, can't talk about that. What the reformers, the Protestant reformers wrote and did, no, you can't talk about that. You know, at a certain point you would even say contemporary martyrs and pastors. No, no, can't talk about that. Right? But that's not biblical, actually. Like if you're saying sola scriptura, then you have to say also we need to consider our own life and doctrine 
And we also need to consider the example that's been set for us. How did we come to believe in this? And what was the example that was set for us? And is it good and godly? If in any measure a false gospel has been presented to us, even Paul in the scriptures says, if I or an angel come to you with a false gospel, preach to you a false gospel, don't listen. So that's important. And actually, I think that gives us the balance where we can read the church councils and the creeds and church history with a view to testing all of the above against scripture and in some measure understanding more richly what it is that the scriptures have to say where some of these things we look at and we say, well, that's not biblical. They didn't really have a support for that. That's an example of something wrong that was being done that was enshrined and people were taken captive by vain and human philosophy. They were acting out of selfish ambition, which we're also told not to do. And we wouldn't be told not to do it if it wasn't the temptation. But even today, I, you know, I think, I think if there's an, if there's a danger of being unbalanced, it is not, at least in the circles that I've run in for years, it is not in an excessive uh, reflection on church history or an excessive uh, referring back to creeds and confessions and councils and whatnot. Actually, if anything, we have too little of that. And so therefore, we think that we're so original when actually some of the things that we're contending with, some of the things that we're dealing with, that these are very classic, repetitive issues that do have some practical solutions, and they also have some principled solutions from the scriptures. And just like when we read in Hebrews about this great cloud of witnesses that we have watching us run this race that's set before us, that is not limited to the men and women who are mentioned explicitly in the book of Hebrews as being from the Old Testament, for instance. I think that is also going to include, if it includes those figures, it's going to include all of God's saints from all of time who have passed on and are now observing how we are running the course, how we are running the race that has been set before us. But I would say this. I would say with regards to historic Orthodox Trinitarianism, it is interesting to me that you have this kind of push in the past century towards a more pragmatic, practical, dare I say it, useful approach to doctrine, which I have to wonder, and this is speculative on my part, but I have to wonder if a lot of it is related to scientism creeping in to the way we do theology. You know, for hundreds of years of certainly European and Western history, theology was regarded as the queen of the sciences and philosophy was seen along with the other physical sciences, as subordinate to theology, with theology being the ultimate queen of the sciences. How can you get any higher in science than studying the essence and the nature of God, God's ontology? How do you get any higher than that? You know, imagine that I was, uh, and then I'm just going to make up a term here, so forgive me, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, but imagine that I was a lionologist, and I, that's what I do, right? I study lions. And all of the young men, especially, 
who listen to this podcast would be like, wow, that's great. Like, that's so cool. You're a lionologist? Like, man, like, have you ever touched a lion? Yeah, absolutely. I touch lions all the time. How else am I going to study them? Wow, that's so cool. Don't they ever try to eat you? No, they're afraid of me because I'm awesome. Like, wow, that's great. You know. So if I were literally a lionologist, you'd be really, really impressed because you think to yourself of how powerful and how big a lion is, right? How dangerous a lion is. And I've seen videos online of these crazy people who must have something wrong with them because they just using uh, body language and having some knowledge of how lions, big cats communicate through nonverbal, obviously, uh, signals. They somehow kind of like work their way into the pride of lions and they're kind of just accepted as a member of the pride. And it probably helps if you're feeding the lions and they, you know, are nursed with a bottle by you from little on up. That probably helps. But in any event, how much more the study of God, where you study the Lion of Judah, you're studying the creator of the universe. And you're trying to understand the essence of God, who is ultimately incomprehensible, uncomprehensible, and yet has communicated about himself, as you believe, through his inspired, infallible, perfect word. And so now you're delving the depths of his word to understand him better so that we think rightly about him. That's how theology used to be thought of. And then in the modern era, especially post-Enlightenment, increasingly all of the other sciences were broken away. Herman Bavink talks about this in the Christian philosophy of science. Look for that to be available for the first time, translated into English here in the coming months from Refcon Press. My friends Bobby and Tara McPherson recently commissioned that to be translated from the Dutch. I had the honor and privilege of editing it in English. And uh, one of the things that Herman Bavink says in the Christian philosophy of science, spoiler alert, is that theology was separated out from the other sciences and all the other sciences were seen as more practical because they dealt with the physical, right? So they were embraced by both the theistic and the atheistic, both the Christian and the secular humanist or positivistic uh, heirs of the Enlightenment. Theology was treated like a redheaded stepchild instead of being the queen of the sciences as she formerly had been because theology is metaphysics, right? We want to talk about the physical, what we can observe, what we can see, touch, taste, feel, hear with our natural senses. You start talking with us about theology. We don't know where to go with that. So then what happens over the past few hundred years is philosophy becomes subordinate to the physical sciences. Psychology becomes just an outgrowth of the physical sciences and biology. Theology, I think, this is my theory, and again, speculative, but I think what happened with theology is that it wanted to be cool again. It wanted to be relevant again. And so in the past century, especially thanks to characters like Jürgen Moltmann, it tried to do the positivistic thing, but with regards to how we view the God of the Bible. 
And so where all these other sciences are saying, ah, you know, the ancients, they were superstitious, they were primitive, they didn't have the scientific method, they didn't have our scientific tools, they didn't have as good of microscopes and telescopes and every other kind of scope. And they attributed natural phenomena to the actions of the gods and uh, bless their souls, but we can do better. I think that theologians who gained traction in the 20th century and now into the 21st, we're seeing ourselves, society, Western civilization, reaping the whirlwind of this. The theologians said, well, we can do that too and be relevant and be practical and pragmatic. We need a pragmatic theology first and foremost. We need a practical theology first and foremost. And so let's make the Trinity, let's make Trinitarianism useful to the ends of pursuing social justice, to the ends of pursuing egalitarianism, to the ends of promoting a radical redistribution of power and wealth in society, and a total total upending of the order. So it's kind of like theistic evolution. And this is a point on which I think I disagree. I think I disagree, or at least I'm very close to disagreeing with Gavin Ortland in his book, which I hope to do a book review of soon, uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. You know, he does regard some issues as being of primary importance, but he also says he's not a uh, young earth creationist. And I look at that and I think to myself, okay, well, you're not a young earth creationist. And of course, you want to say that creationism is not a primary issue. At a minimum, I would maintain, whether I'm disagreeing with him or not, that's not the point. My point is not either to agree or disagree with him, but my point is to be honest and say what accords with, as I see it, sound doctrine. But my my question would be with regards to what we have done with the Trinity and what we've done with our doctrine of creation, our doctrine regarding our own nature, have we been half so concerned with what the Bible has to say on these as we have been concerned with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the sage. We read that in the last days, men will not put up with sound doctrine. They will not. They won't. And so the danger, the very real danger, is as we're trying to figure out what hills to die on, and as we're pursuing this biblical principle of unity, we would compromise in a way that centuries of church history the greats that we refer back to would never have dreamt of compromising because we see everything as a secondary issue, everything that they haven't already settled. And even some of the things that they have settled, we see as a secondary issue until there is no such thing as a primary issue. It's all subjective. It's all your truth and my truth and our truth is whatever we want it to be. So long as we're together, that's all that really matters. And love is love. Faith, trust, and pixie dust, as uh, I think it's Mark Elpinski who wrote The Gospel According to Disney, put it, it's all just easy believism. So we don't want that. We also don't want the kind of theological berserker, Norseman berserker tendency where everyone's a heretic except for me. That's not biblical. That's not godly. We're not supposed to be contentious, but we are supposed to contend for the faith. And so... I don't pretend to fully comprehend all of this, but what I do find fascinating, I find absolutely fascinating, is that it has not just been the doctrine of creation which has been overhauled. I think you could say that. 
With regards to the historic position of Christians down through the centuries, it is not just the doctrine of creation that's been overhauled. It's also the Trinity. It's every doctrine. Every doctrine is up for grabs. And the big question is, can we practically leverage a revision of this doctrine to some useful end? And insofar as the useful end might be to be palatable, marketable to the culture and to not challenge the culture, my question would be this, and I'll leave it at this, and I'm not answering the question right now because I'm still I'm still grappling with this, honestly. It's complicated stuff. But my question would be this. If that's our modus operandi in the mainstream, are we being conformed to the pattern of this world as we're told not to? Are we being transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ Jesus as we are commanded to, as we are admonished to, as we're encouraged in the strongest possible terms to be? That's a very very central question to get at whatever the particular answers to these individual separate questions that i think i think is very needful for us to be asking or everything can be anything these days we need a god who is immutable who is perfect who is holy who is set apart who is unchanging who is incomprehensible And it's a good thing, too, because we need humility desperately. More than we need more knowledge, we need the beginning of understanding, the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes in which we will be, Lord willing, discussing Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, a case for theological triage to close out this episode i will leave you with saint patrick's bad analogies you can finish out this episode there's not much left to this little clip it's great check out by the way lutheran satire on youtube very funny videos very funny donald and connell and saint patrick's bad analogies as always thank you for listening until next time god bless of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Moralism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. So what do you guys do for a living? Well, we come from a long line of snake farmers, Patrick, but truth be told, business has been real bad lately. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.